take this sheet as a reminder for prayer uh, through the week, please. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark 15 this morning. Mark 15. We're going to be in reading in a, in a few moments in verse 21, but before we begin, let me, let me show you a, uh, an etching done um, by Rembrandt. Uh, it is a, an etching. Uh, I can probably see more detail than you can see. It's entitled The Three Crosses. And uh, if you simply Google that, Rembrandt, The Three Crosses, you'll probably be able to see a better image on your own device. But I've shown you this in order to focus your attention on his presentation As we look at this uh, etching done by Rembrandt, we see, first of all, our eye, first of all, trains on the central figure, Jesus, hanging on the cross. And then our eyes drift to the side, and we see the twisted forms of the other men crucified with Jesus, writhing as they are in agony. There are so many people there. There are soldiers there on horseback with spear in hand. There are others just passing through. Others are mocking Jesus. Mary is also presented in the etching, crying. And many art critics, as they look at this etching and see all the people and all of the action that is presented here, many art critics believe that one of the figures represents Rembrandt himself. And in that sense, he recognizes that his own sin also, his own guilt was present. That he, that his sin and his guilt was also heaped upon the Son of God. This morning, we too will follow the text as it's presented to us, the account of the crucifixion of Jesus in Mark 15. Follow in your Bibles. I'll begin reading at verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by. Notice that. He was just passing by. On his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. 
He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, in some of your translations, it will say the sixth hour and the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, or at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely, surely this man was the son of God. Some women who were watching from a distance, among them were were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and, and cared for his needs. Some other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem, were also there. At the foot of the cross, we come to know God. At the foot of the cross, we come to understand the mission of Christ, and at the foot of the cross, we understand ourselves as we are. The Lord Jesus had just been flogged, it says in the preceding paragraph, to what we just read. He'd been flogged. This was the dreaded Roman flagellum in which two soldiers, one on either side of the tied-up prisoner, would beat him again and again on the bared back with, uh, with leather thongs studded with bits of bone and iron. And they would reduce the man to shreds in the beating. Many died from the, from the dreaded Roman flagellum. And after the flogging, the soldiers mocked him. Stationed there as they were in Jerusalem at Passover, when so many people crowded into the city at the Passover, there was tension in the city and consequently tension among the soldiers, and they took out their frustration on this condemned man, this king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews! They mocked him and made fun. Jesus is a joke to them. Weakened by the lashing, Jesus was unable to carry his own cross. Normally, the condemned man would be lashed to the cross piece and um, compelled to carry this heavy cross piece through the city, often a long circuitous route to show everyone just how wrong it was to cross Rome. Jesus was unable to carry the cross piece, and so Simon, who was simply passing through, was, was grabbed and enlisted to carry the cross piece. 
Simon comes from Cyrene in northern Africa. Only Mark mentions his sons. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And you say to yourself, so what? The, this mention of these uh, two men may be a clue about the persons to whom Mark wrote his, the gospel. Uh, many scholars look at Mark's gospel and think it was written for Christians in Rome. And indeed, if you look at Romans 16, where Paul uh, greets people in Rome, among the persons who is greeted is a man named Rufus. So it may be the very same Rufus, and he's mentioned because he's known to the persons uh, to whom Mark, or for whom Mark is writing this account. At any rate, Jesus was crucified at a place called Golgotha, which means um, the place of the skull. Uh, Mark does not describe crucifixion. He doesn't have to go into detail. Everyone knows what it's involved. Everyone has seen it again and again. The Romans crucified countless thousands of people in their brutality. And so everyone knows what it involves. And so Mark describes it in the briefest phrase. They crucified him. Jesus was nailed hand and foot against the rough beams of the cross and he was dying in agony between two thieves and beneath him there the soldiers were gambling for his clothing. Um, the written charge against him was the king of the Jews. Jesus was mocked. He was derided. He was uh, suffering entirely alone. Uh, the Romans crucified criminals at, at a crossroads and even on a little hill in order to be sure that everyone could see the spectacle, as many people as possible, at a crossroads, you know, so people are going through and we want you to see what happens when you cross Rome, when you break Roman law, when you're a lawbreaker and a criminal. It was a deterrent to crime. So those who are passing by make fun of Jesus. They hurl their insults, as did his fellow sufferers on either side of him. And the soldiers joined in. If you're the Son of God, save yourself. And the leaders of the Jews, the priests and the, and the scribes, gloated over his defeated and celebrated their own triumph. You know, they said to one another, if he's the king of the Jews, let him come down. If he's the Messiah, let him come down and save himself. A big part of crucifixion was the shame. You would not treat a dog like this. And that's part of the point. The crucified are stripped naked, hung up for everyone to see, and allowed to suffer to death, sometimes it took days before the condemned would finally succumb. The shame, it is designed to humiliate, to dehumanize, and to degrade the condemned. 
Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it, it forbids, when you're punishing a man, you may not, you may not beat him. This is a lashing in the Old Testament. You may not la- uh, strike him 40 times. And it says, so that your brother will not be degraded in your presence. Well, degradation was the whole point. There was no such lo- a limitation among the Romans. They beat a prisoner as, until they were tired. And degradation and shame was a central part of what the cross was. And then darkness came over the land. It says at the sixth hour. At the sixth hour corresponds to noon and some translations simply say noon. Darkness came over the whole land. It is very dark at the time of day when it is supposed to be the sun is at its highest. It's noon. And suddenly darkness descends upon the land. And this is a cosmic sign of very great significance. Remember that in the Old Testament, when the Lord pronounced judgment and delivered judgment on the Egyptians in order to deliver his people from bondage, plague after plague struck them. The ninth plague before the striking of the firstborn. The ninth plague was darkness that came over Egypt. Among the people of Israel, there was light, but Egypt was engulfed in a terrifying darkness, signifying the judgment and the wrath of God. As a matter of fact, I understand in modern Hebrew, when they speak about it being pitch black, they use the expression choshek mitzrayim, which means the darkness of Egypt. That is what is happening here. This is the wrath of God. The darkness, the dark, the sun itself is clouded away for three hours from noon until three in the afternoon. The Jews, the Jewish leaders had wanted a sign from heaven. They didn't anticipate this as the cosmic confirmation, as witness that the wrath of God was falling upon this condemned man. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' bitter cry, verse 39, is, you know, variously interpreted. It's interesting to look at all the ways that, that people look at this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people look at this and they think that Jesus has lost his faith. Or they see it as an expression of doubt or fear or a a loss of his confidence in God. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 22. Uh, To understand these words, we must recognize the consequence of sin. Sin, the Bible tells us, results in death. Death ultimately is eternal death, eternal judgment in hell. Hell in its very essence. The, The very essence and the terror of hell is separation from God. Exclusion from God's presence. Exclusion from all the blessing and the mercy and the goodness of God. Exclusion from everything that is good is the very essence of what hell is. 
Matter of fact, in his teaching, Jesus uses the expression on more than one occasion, they were cast into outer darkness to describe the terrors of the judgment of the Almighty. Well, in this case, Jesus, who had known perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit from all eternity, that perfect oneness is now interrupted as Jesus is made sin for us, is separated from, endures, he is enduring hell for us on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross confronts us with God's hatred and God's love. God's hatred of sin and God's love for us sinners. Here at the cross, we see God's holiness. You know, the prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament said of God, you are too pure, your eyes are too pure to even look at evil. Or the apostle John writes, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. He lives in inapproachable light. He is perfection. He is holiness and righteousness. If God is light and in him is no darkness at all, humanity has filled this world from one end to the other with darkness. Humanity has filled history from the very beginning to this very present day with darkness. And God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And God hates sin. And his hatred for sin is seen in this horrible judgment that the Son of God endures. The price is paid and the wrath of God is poured out and hell is endured by the Son of God. And here we also see the infinite love of God. Because God himself, in taking up the mantle of humanity in our place, endures this wrath for us, that we might be spared. The sinless Son of God dies alone, deserted, the weight of the world's guilt upon him, and the sun itself pales as he dies. God loves us. The Son of God endured it for us. As a pastor, as a counselor, over the years I've talked to various people, various situations about feelings of guilt and, you know, people talking about what they've done and how bad it was and how awful they feel and the shame they feel, the embarrassment. I can still feel shame when I think about it, they might say. And some of us feel that way at times. We feel that way. We know our shame and our guilt But along with Rembrandt, we are reminded that the Son of God died there for us and he took the full payment for us. He took the full penalty 
for us. He paid the price of sin and guilt. We are redeemed not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Son of God himself. And the precious blood shed for us has infinite power and infinite value. Value enough to cover my sin and yours. Notice it says in verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's very important. This is a veil, a curtain. There are in the temple there are two rooms, inner rooms. First of all is the holy place. In the holy place, the, the priests could come into the holy place. Actually, they had to come in once a day. The priest, only the priest could enter, but they had to come in once a day in the holy place to tend the, the, the uh, lights on the menorah. And they had to come in uh, weekly on Sabbath by Sabbath to place the bread on the sacred table. But there was a curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place could only be entered only, only by the high priest and only once a year. Only the high priest, only once a year. And it was that curtain between the holy place and the most holy place that was torn in two, indicating that now that the Son of God has paid the price of sin, access to God's very presence is open. No more only the high priest, no more only the Levitical priesthood. All who trust in Christ may come right into the presence of God. That's what you and I do every time we pray. We come right into the Father's presence. And we come through faith in the one who died for us. It says the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Notice it was was not opened. It was torn. The fact that it was torn indicates destruction. The veil uh, was destroyed. It's a way of expressing rejection of the temple and rejection of the sacrificial system. It was torn because now the sacrificial system is no longer necessary because Christ, who is actually the sacrifice for sin, has paid the, the price. And all of the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament were only shadows leading to this to this day. And notice he says it was torn in two from top to bottom, indicating it was the action of God himself. It was God who tore the temple in two. And Mark indicates that we must understand this. The cross of Christ is a reversal of everything one might expect. I mean, the triumph The triumph of evil leads to its crushing defeat. The Messiah is a king who dies like a criminal, like a pauper. You wouldn't treat a dog like this. The Messiah is a king who dies like a criminal. Weakness is a sign of power. Death is a means of life. And God-forsakenness leads to reconciliation with God. Paul writes, God was in Christ 
reconciling the world to himself. Certainly evil engulfed Jesus on the cross. He was mocked, he was whipped, he was spat upon, he was derided. Jesus, the Messiah, died alone in darkness between two thieves. Only a few faithful women were there, watching, it says, at a distance. But God's most awesome work was done in the weakness of his son. Jesus took all the crushing power of sin and death and hell. He absorbed it and then he defeated it. He conquered it. He was raised again on the third day, the victor over sin and death. I don't know if you know the name Anselm. Anselm was, first of all, a monk and then later uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He wrote a book entitled Cur Deus Homo, Why, Why God Became Man. The book is written in dialogue form. Uh, A man asks him questions and Anselm answers and explains and he reasons and he shows him. And, you know, if you ask the question, you know, why can't God just forgive sin? Why can't he just say, ah, you're forgiven? No cross, no suffering, none of that. Just God forgives. And Anselm explains why God cannot do this. This is why God became man. One of the things that Anselm emphasizes is you must understand the awful weight of sin. You must understand that. You must furthermore understand the magnificence, the majesty of the Holy One. If you understand, then you can understand why God became man. Only God can do this. Only God in the person of the Son become man can pay the price, purchase forgiveness, and secure salvation. So there you and I are, along with Rembrandt, at the sight of the cross, astonished, afraid, confused, and yet grateful. Mark tells us there was a soldier there, a centurion. And the centurion, notice what it says in verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. He confesses his faith. He sees in Jesus the son of God and confesses his faith. You know, this is how Mark began the gospel. He said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And now as he concludes, he uses this expression once again. He reports the centurion's confession of faith. He's the son of God. And Mark records this because he wants you and me to respond in the same way. On our knees, on our faces, Lord, you are the son of God. You died for me. I will live for you. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we know that there is so much that we do not understand. We cannot plumb the mysteries of God. 
we, in our minds, gather at the cross and try to understand what was accomplished, what was meant, what you did. And yet, even though we cannot understand the depths of it, Lord, even a child can understand that you love us, that you sent your Son to pay the penalty for us, that he was crucified and paid the price and was raised again. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. We honor you for the simplicity, for the power of Christ, our Savior, and for the power of the message. And thank you, Lord, that it has reached even us. We thank you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.